Coming up on Stu Does America. Now, I've never personally issued a debate challenge to the New York Times as much as I'd like to say that I have. Luckily, there is a man so brave that he has done so. Christopher Rufo from City Journal is that man. We'll talk about his personal war against the Times and critical race theory. And wouldn't you know it, Texas does something uh, pretty good. And Beto O'Rourke returns from whatever greasy underground punk club he hangs out in to bitch about it. We'll look at Beto's response to the Texas reopening. Thank you so much for tuning in tonight. Make sure you share your show, this show, with your friends and uh, family. Make sure they know that they can watch for free. I mean, that's important information, isn't it? Head to studosamerica.com. Find the links to the show on YouTube, Facebook, podcast, and much, much more. Or support the network that supports this stupid show with a Blaze TV subscription. Head to blazetv.com slash stew and enter the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show and you'll save 10 bucks. It's been a strange week for minimum wage legislation. Odd couple team-ups, sort of, in Congress. Classic AOC screeching. Joe Biden assumedly drooling on the bills themselves. It's been tough to keep up with all of it. Luckily, I exist, and I can break it all down for you. So let's do the minimum wage. Stu does America. Welcome to the program on a very important day, by the way. A very important day, a day so important you shall remember it for all time. Why is it an important day? Because these things right here. Mm -hmm. That's right. Nancy Pelosi sucks pens are back in stock. So first time since November. Every time we get these things in stock, you buy them immediately and clean out the stock. Uh, They're available now. Don't miss them. They're going to go away soon, I'm sure, once again. But Nancy Pelosi sucks pen available uh, now at Nancy Pelosi sucks pen. Dot com. Uh, you might need uh, to wake a little bit more than the minimum wage to afford one of these puppies. I mean, they are hot items. The minimum wage has been around for a while, and I've never liked it. I'm not a fan of the minimum wage. I've made the minimum wage. In fact, I've made below the minimum wage. That's what sort of value I bring to society. The minimum wage, of course, is a controversial thing. Uh, however, it's not really controversial among voters. And this is one of the reasons why the Democrats are always blabbing about it. It is one of the most popular proposals uh, among our public discourse. It's the polls are in the 70s, 80s and almost in the 90s when it comes to approval of raising the minimum wage. Now, the Democrats want to go for 15 bucks an hour. That's a little bit less popular because people see that could be really damaging. But right now it's 725 an hour. It hasn't been raised since 2009. And pretty much if you ask the average citizen, Democrat, independent, Republican, they're all going to say that's wrong. That doesn't mean they actually understand what's going on with this. And that's why we have Graffapalooza here for you today. Conservators, unite. We've got lots of graphs for you today. We're going to start off, though, with an AOC tweet showing how dumb she really is. She says uh, it's an utter it's utterly embarrassing that pay people enough to live is a stance that's even up for debate. Override the parliamentarian and raise the wage. McDonald's workers in Denmark are paid twenty two dollars an hour in six weeks paid vacation. Fifteen dollars an hour is a deep compromise, a big one, considering the phase in now. You know, look, I understand that it's a little bit of a cheap tactic, okay, as a host of a program to illustrate uh, AOC as the voice of your opposition. 
you know, it's 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 like you're just setting yourself up. It's, it's you know, it's, again, batting practice fastballs here. I will say, however, they're not the only ones. I mean, the nation, $15 an hour is the compromise. We need a Jacobin is even doing it. We need a $15 minimum wage. No excuses. Why $15? Well, it's the number that they've settled on and the talking point that they've settled on. Does it make any sense, though? We should note, first of all, AOC's argument is ridiculous. First of all, Denmark, the country she's talking about, does not have a minimum wage. So just think of how dumb you have to be to tweet this big defense of the minimum wage and how McDonald's is making they're making twenty two dollars an hour in Denmark when Denmark doesn't even have a minimum wage. They have negotiations between different sectors of the economy, as David Harsani points out in a great piece for National Review. The most obvious problem for Ocasio-Cortez's contention is that Denmark, like other Scandinavian nations, does not have a statutory minimum wage. Denmark's generous welfare state is propped up by shared social and cultural norms and institutions that are habitually reviled by American progressives. Unimpeded international trade. Oh, they love it. Bernie loves that. Low regulatory burdens on businesses. Uh, you think Bernie and AOC are going to go for that? And sometimes oil and gas checks. Denmark and Norway are Western Europe's largest oil and gas producers. Of course, that wouldn't even be allowed in AOC's world. Um, not only do Danish fast food employees making $45,000 a year hand over half of their earnings to the government, they pay a 25% value-added tax on most, most purchases. And like the idea that $22 an hour sounds like a wonderful thing, uh, it does to a lot of people. A lot of people would say, yeah, $15, $22, what a great minimum wage. But when you're paying half of that in taxes plus another 25% VAT tax on every purchase that you make, what good is it? It's like, you know, it's a lot of like these sports contracts. They'll be like, oh, they just signed for a five-year, $95 million contract. $4 million guaranteed. It's like, okay, let's not, that's a five-year, $4 million contract is what it is. Um, American consumers should be prepared for, to pay more for food if this, of course, goes through. Or they're going to be served by robots. And honestly, no offense. I mean, I can't even, I don't even have to say no offense. I was a fast food worker. I worked at McDonald's back in the day. It was, I think, my first job. It was my first or second job. And I will say, you would much rather be served by robots than me. Yeah, <laughs> you, would get your, you get your order right a much higher percentage of the time. And the robot has a much better personality. I'll, I'll be honest with you, at least than I did. Um, so this sort of situation with AOC is kind of the typical thing, right? You say, uh, look at Europe. They're fantastic. They're better than us. And we need to emulate them. But what people don't understand are really the facts about the minimum wage. And... Th- the way that this bill was working, they were trying to jam this through with uh, $15 minimum wage in, involved in a, um, a bill that only needed 50 votes. Now, you can't do this, okay? You can't put the minimum wage in through reconciliation. That's the process where you only, only need 50 votes. They asked the parliamentarian, which AOC referenced, and the parla- parliamentarian said, uh, no. That's not how this works. What AOC is asking for is, I don't know, then change the rules. I didn't get what I wanted. When I don't get what I want, you change the rules. She's basically Veruca Salt, okay? And that is the kind of, she's the Veruca Salt of Congress. Uh, She wants it now, and she wants to change the rules to get it. Not a surprise coming from AOC, and her style of leadership would, would lead to these things all the time if it was ever embraced. Thank God, so far, it has not been. But what people don't understand is that you get this idea that there are a lot of people out there 
fighting to live on minimum wage and support a family. First of all, we all know that when you think about minimum wage, I made minimum wage when I was like 18. Okay? People make minimum wage when they're very young and they're getting their first job. Maybe it's a part-time job. They also might make it occasionally when they're on their older side. Maybe they're just taking a job um, to, to pass the time, to kind of stay out in the workforce, uh, maybe to keep themselves, you know, get, you know, get something to get up for every day, to meet some new people. That, those sorts of jobs sometimes go to older people. But generally speaking, they're almost all younger people. Most of them are in college or a college age. It's not a huge surprise that those people cannot support a family based on a minimum wage. And it's not designed to support a family. But the other thing you need to know about this is, yes, most of the people are, are very young uh, and, uh, you know, probably aren't trying to support a family. But also of those people, there's almost like none of them. I mean, there's almost no one in the workforce today that is making minimum wage. Almost no one. Let me give you the chart here. And this is graph numero uno. Uh, of the day. Uh, this is the percentage of people in the workforce that are making the minimum wage. Now, back in 1979, about 9% of people were making the minimum wage. That has gone down quite a bit, below 6% in 1985, below 4% for the first time in 1989, hung around 4% for the next decade or so, and then went down again uh, till 2007 it came all the way down to about 1.5% or so. 2009 was the first time that the minimum wage went up in quite a long time. A few, a couple percent of people uh, were making it once again, uh, climbed back up to about 3.5%. But now it is where it is today. Zero, starting with a zero, folks, 0.8% of workers make the minimum wage. Zero. Point eight. Zero. Point eight. Almost no one makes the minimum wage in this country. And that is something that is quite obvious, I think, to people who understand the economy. You know, you know what happens if you pay your people minimum wage? You're going to get people who are entry level. Okay. You're going to get some people who maybe can't get jobs in other places, so they might not be the best workers, or they might not be the most skilled workers. Uh, and you also get, um, you know, uh, a, a group of people here and there that, that slip through the cracks. It's not impossible for that to happen. But the number is incredibly small. And what happens if you pay your people minimum wage is they start going, the good ones start going to work for other places. That's just how it is. Now, let me show you a, a picture here. This is another uh, graph in our Graphapalooza presentation. Conservators, Unite! This is the average hourly wage of production workers from 1790 to 1900. And this comes from a professor. Now, what you'll see here is a consistent increase in, from 1790 to 1900. The wages go up and up and up and up and up from less than a dollar an hour, about 60 cents an hour, all the way up to about 450 an hour. And you know what didn't exist through this entire time? The minimum wage. For some reason, people kept earning more and more and more, despite the fact that there was no minimum wage to make that happen. And, and you know, this is the, one of the traps that the left puts you in. They, may, they want you to believe the only way these problems can be solved is by government. Well, the government is not needed in these areas. The minimum wage is going to go up because people want workers 
uh, and the best ones, uh, so they will pay them more. They want to be competitive. There's a competitive market out there. And honestly, if you made the minimum wage zero tomorrow, there would be no one making a dollar an hour. Basically, no one. I mean, there's already no one making seven twenty-five an hour. There would be basically no one making a dollar an hour. Uh, why? Well, because you ha- there's competition. You're not you don't you don't exist on an island. You have to be able to pay people uh, the best wage possible, or they're going to go somewhere else. And that's what's shown here in this graph. This is uh, from 1979 to 2019. This is the median hourly wage of sal- uh, wage and salary workers in the United States, 1979 to 2019. What you see here. Despite the fact that they would complain since 2009, there's been no increase in the minimum wage. You see a massive increase in the uh, median wage in that time. In fact, all the way up to above this year would be the first year. It would clear $15 an hour. Now, with the pandemic, we don't have these numbers in, by the way, yet for 2020. Um, So we don't know for sure. In a normal year, it would have been over 15. But the pandemic may screw with those numbers. We'll see as they come out. But you see a very consistent increase with really no regard of whether they increase the minimum wage or not. And in fact, I, I give you the median wage intentionally because the median wage is lower than the average wage. The average wage is well over $20 an hour in this country. Yeah, we're talking Denmark levels. Why? Well, because people have to compete for workers. And the true minimum wage is zero. It's not $7.25. It's not going to be $15 an hour if they raise it there. It will be zero. The people who are making $7.25 today will make zero in this world because they will all be fired. Now, some of them will, of course, survive. Some of them are worth the $15 an hour. But largely, those people will be laid off because there will be no, you can't take a person who's only worth $7.25 to your company and pay him $15 an hour consistently or you're screwed. Your company goes out of business. You wind up having to raise prices for everyone else. And that's a big part of this. You're going to be paying more for every single thing that you buy. And, you know, the American people like the idea of a $15 minimum wage because they're nice people, right? It's a nice argument. This is why it's so popular. It's why it's in the 80s when you pull it. It's because people say, you know what? I don't make the minimum wage maybe, but I remember working and struggling hard. And and that person over there, if they make the minimum wage, I want to do something good for them. I want to do something that benefits them. But it's, first of all, not your money to do anything. If you want to do something that benefits them, give them your money, Okay. But beyond that, it is a a system that does not benefit people like that. It hurts people at the bottom. And those people wind up losing their job. And we wind up paying millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars, billions of dollars to pay for their 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 wages to do nothing because they wind up getting in government programs and we pay for it anyway. None of it makes any sense. And that leads me to Josh Hawley. Now. Josh Hawley, of course, a Republican senator, seen as an up and coming uh, star in the Republican Party, at least until January 6, 2021. I don't know where it's going to go from here. We'll see. Um, But forget all that other stuff. Forget the stuff that gets in the tabloids, uh, you know, and, and and becomes the clickbait of the day. Josh Hawley has proposed a counterproposal against, uh, you know, the $15 minimum wage that AOC was cheering on. And here's here are the details of it. Josh Hawley backed an increase in the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. If small businesses are exempt to the hike in pay, meaning only Americans working in big business would benefit. What he basically is saying is $15 minimum wage. I'm going to agree with you, Democrats, $15 minimum wage, but it only applies to companies that make a billion dollars or more. 
in revenue. First of all, revenue is a terrible thing to base this on. What if your company's losing money? You have to give everybody raises to $15 an hour if you have people under $15 an hour. Um, I mean, a billion dollars is a lot of money in revenue, but that doesn't mean you could be losing money as a company. You could be shedding money all over the place and you have to give people raises. That makes no sense to base it on revenue. But besides that, it's this thing that it's this populism thing that is inside the Republican Party right now is pushing them into a lot of different policies that honestly would be laughable at any time in the last 15 or 20 years. We really are want to be the party of a $15 minimum wage. We want to be the party that is out there trying to outdo uh, the Democrats on giveaways. Is this the, I mean, is this what the Republican Party is? It's certainly, there's, I will say, there is a sort of a battle inside the Republican Party to see what it is. And look, Josh Hawley will vote uh, on a lot of bills the way that I think he should. I don't think he's the worst guy in the world by any means, but this is a terrible policy. And basically what it's saying is, well, $15 an hour, uh, at least for those big evil businesses, those bad, you know, awful companies, you know, those big Amazon, you know, those guys, those guys can pay the $15 an hour. Well, you know what? Amazon is paying $15 an hour as a minimum wage. They just did it on their own. What Josh Hawley wants to do is step in and run all those companies. And that's the same thing AOC wants to do. You know, sure, Josh Hawley's car- doing a little carve out for small business. I got that. Uh, it's, I guess, if you had to vote on one of those two policies, uh, I guess you'd pick Hawley's. But step back from this for a second. This is supposed to be a two-party system. If you have one side of the aisle saying they want a $15 minimum wage and their opposition is saying, well, we know what we want, a $15 minimum wage, you no longer have a two-party system. You have a one-party system. You have a one-party system that looks at the polls and just throws the finger up in the wind and says, well, whether this policy is good or bad for Americans, it tests so well in the polls, let's go for it. No one gives a crap what I think the the Republican Party should do. I'm not even in the Republican Party, uh, technically. I've been an independent my entire life. But what I will say is that if there's not a party who's fighting for some fiscal sanity, then we don't have two parties anymore. And I don't know. Maybe you think, hey, two parties was too much. It was too confusing. I like the one single choice. Maybe that's you. But I will say it's not me. The minimum wage should be appropriately zero. And honestly, it should not go up at all. If you want to have it go up, uh, up it in your state. Lots of states have higher minimum wages. You don't need to have a federal minimum wage. Just like the freaking country of Denmark, we can do without it. You know, is $15 uh, an hour even enough? How are you going to buy a spectacular nine-bedroom home on $15 an hour? It needs to be $1,500 an hour. And I will not take one penny less than that. But only for companies that have over $12 in revenue. That's just what I'm saying. I'm just going to put that line out there because I'm a populist. Well, if you want to buy a nine-bedroom home, you can go to uh, realestateagentsidetrust.com. You might as well get the best agent if you're going to make a purchase that big. We're talking five, ten, twenty million dollars. That you know what you deserve that. Why? Because you exist. You don't need to work for it. Don't worry about that. Just go and get your nine-bedroom home from realestateagentsidetrust.com. If uh, if you if you need to buy or sell your home for the most amount of money, that's the place to go. They do have really great agents that have been screened. 
um, and hopefully won't won't tell you uh, that that they agree with AOC. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's part of the program. It should be, though. That should be one of the screening questions. Have you or will you have you ever in the past or will you ever in the future agree with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Click no. You get it on realestateagentsitrust.com. That's not actually their policy. It's just the one that I want. Realestateagentsitrust.com is the place to go. Realestateagentsitrust.com. I'm joined once again by Christopher Rufo. He is the contributing editor for the City Journal and a director at the Discovery Institute's Center on Wealth, Poverty, and Morality. Chris, thanks so much for coming on the program again. It's good to be with you. Uh, I noticed you had a little dust up with the New York Times, and uh, I wanted to ask you about this to start it off. You tweeted this. Today, the New York Times claimed that I want to ban critical race theory because I am afraid to debate it. This is false. In fact, I will debate any prominent critical race theorist on the floor of the New York Times. I will give them home field advantage and dismantle them. You go on to say that uh, you gave them five days to answer this. Um, I'm noticing it's February 26th. So five days have now expired. When is the debate going to happen? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, I called the New York Times bluff and they immediately folded. Uh, the reporter who denounced me in the pages of the uh, opinion pages uh, refused to debate. All the critical race theorists cited in the piece refused to debate. And that's really become a very common theme on the left. They like to talk tough on their own platforms, but they're unwilling to submit their ideas uh, to public debate and public discourse. Uh, you, you get people that are kind of uh, very brazen in their rhetoric, all of a sudden become very quiet when you actually challenge them. Uh, but it's an open opportunity. I'm happy to go down to the New York Times uh, any time of the week uh, to debate the critical race theorists. So wh what what did they say about you that made you take it this way? That they, they, they say you will not debate it because, I mean, you've been all over the place. It's not like you're afraid to talk about this. Why did they believe you were? Well, they're trying to reclaim the mantle of free speech. They're trying to say any restrictions on left-wing ideology in public institutions is a threat to free speech. And Michelle Goldberg, the columnist, explicitly wrote uh, that the right, including me, who she featured in uh, you know, more than half the piece, is afraid to debate these ideas, so they're trying to ban them. Um, I mean, it's just totally false. It's totally ridiculous. And even on the comments at the New York Times website, uh, most of the liberal readers said, hey, uh, I'm with you on most issues, but we've gone way too far in critical race theory. Uh, I think it's an ideology that has very little public support. Uh, it's really on life support by legacy institutions uh, such as the Times uh, and some of the legacy political organizations. Is that, is that true? Because I, I feel like it's the opposite right now. It might just be because maybe a lot of us are were late to this, um, but it feels like the momentum is picking up. And these things, with the exception of really your work and a few others, this is increasing and hitting us in every aspect of our lives. It is, but it's actually this really ironic situation. It's almost paradoxical that uh, while wokeness is ascendant in all American public institutions, it feels like these woke programmings and curricula are everywhere. It's actually not popular with Americans, and that's the distinction. It's extremely popular among uh, public and publicly funded university professors, in corporate HR departments, uh, in, in, in federal agencies, and in school districts. Uh, it's really emanated from these publicly funded institutions, but if you talk to most Americans, and actually do the polling, uh, it's extremely unpopular. So it, it lacks popular support, but it has institutional power. And that's really what I'm going after. I'm trying to shift the balance of power within American institutions and let the public know what's actually happening uh, so they can start fighting back. And really all you're doing here is just trying to inform people, right? You've been able to uncover 
these actual programs going on at companies and uh, universities and schools all across America uh, that are they're really like spoon feeding this to the average people who I would imagine many of them are just sitting there rolling their eyes and trying to get through the meeting. Um, but this stuff is important. They're sending it to you. You're able to uncover it in various different ways. And I almost get the sense that the people who are defending critical race theory treat this as almost like an unfair tactic. Like you can't show what we're actually saying. That's not fair. But I mean, isn't that the only way that we're supposed to understand this? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're very kind of jealous and private and protective of their, their ideas and their programs. But uh, it's very simple what I'm doing. I've developed sources in hundreds of different institutions around the country. I'm building my network of, of things. And like an old school kind of gumshoe reporter going out and finding documents, finding emails, finding uh, videos, things that are incontrovertible. These are actual facts, what kind of things that they're teaching in our institutions. And, uh, you know, frankly, the left has gotten used to having total dominance over the public bureaucracy in the last 30 years, and they almost take offense to any challenge. Um, but, you know, I'm here to tell you, uh, I'm not going to slow down. I'm actually accelerating. I'm adding partners, adding other people who are working on this. Uh, we're going to go after them, uh, and we're going to go after their funding. We're going to go after their ability to uh, perpetuate the idea, these ideas in, in state curricula. Um, we're not going to give them any rest, so uh, they should get used to this uncomfortable feeling because uh, it's go- only going to increase in the next year. I want to talk about uh, one of your uh, more recent finds here. This is from Arizona, and it it is instruction that essentially babies are racists. Uh, there's baby racists out there, apparently, and these baby racists need to be cured as, as, as young as three months. You need to be teaching them not to be racist and not, I guess, to be an anti-racist. It's never it's never enough to just not be a racist. You have to be an anti-racist. Uh, this is remarkable. And, and the fact that they're doing this with kids, you know, as young as three months is really disturbing. Yeah, it's from the Arizona Department of Education. They put together an equity toolkit that teaches actually that babies are a blank slate at birth. So babies are not racist at birth. But within 90 days, they show the first signs of racial bias and discrimination. And they become really full-fledged racist babies by the age of four or five. And then they, they give, are giving parents and educators a series of tools to deprogram your racist babies. I mean, it's almost absurd and it's almost unbelievable. I had to verify these documents. I archived the website because I, I knew that it's almost just preposterous, this kind of thing. But here's the really dangerous and awful part. Uh, Arizona is a red state. It has a red governor. It has a red legislatures. And um, it's still happening within the institutions, within the bureaucracy. Uh, so I'm looking for... Uh, the governor, frankly, Governor Ducey, to put his foot down and said, you know, we're going to draw a line in the sand. Babies aren't racist. Get this garbage uh, out of our official uh, state documents. What do you think is the cause of this? Because, I mean, look, Doug Ducey is no, you know, he's not a communist. I mean, like that's not who the guy is. I have to imagine at some level he was unaware of this. If he wasn't unaware of this, this is a much larger scandal in my mind. Um, But Uh, Is it because they just don't know? Is it because they're just afraid to step up and say anything about it because it's so controversial? Why does this stuff exist in a red state? 
I think for, for two reasons. I think both are true to a certain extent. First, um, uh, of course, I don't think he knew about this program. I don't think he knew about all the details. He's running a large state agency. He can't keep track of everything. Uh, but I think what's happened is that left-wing ideologues have seized the cultural means of production and seized control in many cases of state and government bureaucracies where it doesn't matter who's in office. It could be a Democrat or a Republican. They're just going to push this ideology through state institutions as a kind of permanent infrastructural move. Um, and I think that if the test is not, does a governor like Doug Ducey know everything that's going on? Obviously, he doesn't. The test is really when he finds out about this, as he certainly has already found out about it, will he do something to stop it? Uh, that's the test we're going to see in the next 48 to 72 hours uh, if he's uh, up to the challenge. So what has your uh, success level been when you've come to this situation, particularly in a red state? I know Donald Trump uh, made some moves uh, towards the end of his administration when he kind of came across this stuff. You've been finding this all over the country, sometimes in really blue states, sometimes in red states. What has your success level been with Republicans in particular? Well, I think Republicans are finally starting to wake up to the challenge. Typically and traditionally, Republicans have been concerned about issues of economic freedom and taxation, uh, but they're starting to understand that this cultural left-wing ideology that's perpetuating our institutions is really the greatest threat. And uh, I've worked with state legislators uh, in now eight states that have introduced legislation to ban these kind of training programs statewide, throughout the government, throughout school curricula. Uh, that movement is growing. I'm also working with a team of lawyers to start filing lawsuits to raise the cost on institutions that are trying to uh, you know, embed these practices and ideas of race, racial essentialism, of collective guilt and race based harassment. Uh, so we're on the offensive. And I think one of the reasons that the New York Times and, and other publications have gone on the attack against me lately is that we are starting to feel the heat. They're starting to feel uh, under threat. They're starting to realize that their public ideology is finally being contested. Uh, and I'm not going to stop until we win. Why this for you? I mean, you didn't like you came. I think, you know, I became aware of you from a documentary you, you made a while ago. It wasn't about critical race theory. Why? Why is this, you know, lit you on fire like this? I mean, this is it really is like you've become a one man movement. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's something that I just feel passionately about. I think that if you look at all of the various angles of policy, I've studied uh, poverty in America, I've studied homelessness in America, I've studied uh, political culture around the world, and uh, this ideology, this movement uh, is really, I think, one of the most dangerous things for our country. They're trying to shift America away from a country uh, that's based on protection of individual rights, private property, and equality under the law, uh, to a system that enshrines uh, group-based rights, that enshrines kind of neo-discrimination, and really seeks to undermine the very foundations of this country. Uh, and it's, look, I'm not actually worried about it for me. I'm going to be fine. You're going to be fine. We're, we're affluent. We're well-educated. We're able to kind of come what may. But I think that critical race theory, the, the thing that to me is the greatest moral crime of this ideology, uh, is that it would crush the institutions uh, that are meant to uplift and hold together uh, the most vulnerable and the poorest people in our country. Uh, I'm not going to let that happen. I think this is a great country, uh, and I'm ready to defend our country's deepest principles. Mm, that's great. I, um, let me run this last one here by you before I let you go. Um, I think it was during the, the last days of the Trump administration, uh, they went after one university, and you might remember what, which one it was. Um, and they basically said, 
you know, the university made a big public statement like we have been racist for far too long. All of our racism is racisty and we're super duper racist and we need to make that right. And I believe it was the Trump administration that said, wait a minute, you guys are racist. Are you admitting that? Because if you are, it's a crime. Um, and they went after them on that basis. Sort of fundamental to this critical race theory is every single one of these institutions saying they are racist, which is against the law. Is that just a fun talk show point that I really like? Or is that a legitimate way to put pressure on these guys? Yeah, I think in that case, it was Betsy DeVos that issued the letter warning. I believe it was Princeton that uh, mm. if they really are systemically racist, uh, that's actually illegal. They could lose their federal funding. Uh, I think in that instance, it was kind of a fun kind of PR move. Uh, but there's actually a deeper legal problem for these folks. If they're perpetuating uh, racial stereotypes, if they're perpetuating ideas of collective guilt so that you are guilty for some historical crime based on your skin color, uh, your sex, uh, or your nationality, those are crimes under mm. the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And, and that's what my legal team is, is really contesting now in the courts. We have three cases uh, that are pending. We're going to be filing a new case hopefully next month. Uh, we're going to go after these folks because they we have to hold them accountable for their rhetoric. We have to hold them accountable for their real world impact. Um, and this is going to be a fun way to contest it. We're going to get them in courts under oath to determine whether their, their ideology is merely kind of baseless rhetoric uh, or they actually believe it and are willing to be held accountable for it. Christopher Rufo, keep going, man. We really, really appreciate your work. Thank you for uncovering all of this. He's an editor, uh, contributing editor at the City Journal, director of the Discovery Institute's Center on Wealth, Poverty and Morality. Chris, make sure to follow him on Twitter, by the way. He reveals a lot of this on Twitter and it's uh, really important stuff. Chris, thanks for coming on the program. Thank you. All right, back in a second. They literally want to sacrifice the lives of our fellow Texans for, I don't know, for, for political gain, to satisfy certain powerful interests within the state. And, and this isn't hyperbole. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, you really don't know. That's the best thing you said there. I don't know, because you don't know. Uh, he's talking about the Texas lifting the mask mandate and opening uh, things to 100 percent. Interesting side note to this, by the way, uh, earlier today, Connecticut, Connecticut lifted most of their restrictions across the state and opened all and most businesses, almost all businesses up to 100 percent capacity. So this is happening around around the country right now. And the reason for it is like we're toward the end of this thing. I mean, like the, the numbers are coming down pretty dramatically. Uh, we have the vaccine on the way. And Beto is like a really bad cartoon character politician. Like he's he's obviously not very bright. But in addition to that, he just says these like really definitive things because I think he thinks it kind of makes him a tough guy politician. I'm going to take on the establishment. Uh, but he comes off, you know, like a like a cartoon character. I mean, he called the Republicans the, a cult of death. I don't know if you've looked at your abortion policy lately uh, in the Democratic Party. Uh, it's not exactly what I would say, a cult of life. Um, you know, when you come, when you have a state that has kept things pretty much open, like uh, Florida, like Arizona, like Texas, that has uh, shown uh, performance wise to, to put themselves in, uh, you know, the middle of the pack, honestly, when it comes to states uh, nationwide. And you've seen some others who've performed even better with with lo low restrictions. You have to just like at some point have a moment of reflection and say these dumb talking points don't make any sense. 
It doesn't make any sense to sit here and point fingers at Texas. You know, I think people who, if you live in Texas, if you live in Florida, I don't know if you fully understand what the mindset is in the Northeast, in California, uh, in these highly restricted states. These people have lived a totally different life than us in the past year. And if you're one of these states, you, you know this. Um, people, when they leave those areas and come to Florida, come to Texas, can't believe this is how life is. And, you know, one of the big things you saw, you know, dolts like Keith Olbermann were saying like, oh, gosh, this is going to be a disaster and, and insulting people like Greg Abbott. Like, I think what people don't really understand if you don't live in, let's say, Texas, is the fact that this is going to change very little. People have been doing these things anyway and still cutting in half the death rate of a place like New York. You know, it's been going on. The lifting of the mask mandate will make my wife very happy and, you know, make my friend Sarah Gonzalez very happy and make me happy as well. I don't think we should have a mask mandate. But as far as day to day life, it's really not going to change all that much, frankly. Uh, we've been pretty much open this entire time. Uh, you know, there will be some more possibilities for large gatherings, probably. Uh, and again, they should probably be outside, you know, as much as you can until you're vaccinated. But we're, we're getting there and we're right around the corner from hopefully this thing being done. And, you know, Beto's dumb comments are not going to uh, to change things here. I mean, they had I hate it here was trending on Twitter. I hate it here. Like I hate it in Texas. I've got the best opportunity for you. We have no border walls uh, anywhere, really. You can even go to Mexico uh, for sure. But you could actually go to any other state and stay there. If you hate it here, go there. I have friends who have done that. They didn't like it in Texas. They went to other states. Now, the opposite seems to be happening about 25 times as often. We keep importing California residents and we keep importing residents of New York into Texas because they can't stand their state. And when they come here, they still bitch about it. If you want to come to Texas, great. We'd love to have you if you're sane. If not, stay in New York. Stay in California. This is coming, by the way, from a born New Yorker. I was born in New York. I just got here as fast as I could. Back in a second. I have a wonderful daughter, uh, Ainsley, and uh, Ainsley lives life in a particular way. She kind of goes face first into life, you know? So every time she's outside, I, I am always a little tense, uh, wondering when she's going to come in with like a limb severed or uh, some terrible tragedy that has, that has occurred outside. She, she just goes for it, man. She does not care. She's very brave. And occasionally that results in some uh, bumps and bruises. And, you know, you always, as a parent, worry about that really serious injury that could happen. You know, it takes EMS like 37 minutes to get to your home on average. Um, you know, there are arteries in your body that if they get cut, you're talking about eight minutes from the time it happens to the time you're gone. Eight minutes. Uh, you need to have a serious first aid kit on hand, and I will tell you the best one, Bear First Aid Kit from Refuge Medical. Uh, this, these guys are great. They are fans of the, of the show and the blaze. For, they've been that way for a long time. They supply the military. Um, they have the highest quality uh, first aid kit you're ever going to get. And you need to have one of these. You can't, you know, like, having a box of Band-Aids in your pan pantry is not going to be enough. 
If you go to refugemedical.com, you get 15% off their first aid kits. Uh, use the promo code Stu. You'll get that 15% off. Make sure to use the promo code Stu because that's how they know you like this stupid show. And I will say this, you know, when you are worried about uh, that moment, the moment where every second counts, you're going to wish you had a first aid kit of some quality. You're not going to want to have crap. You want to have something real that can actually save a life when you need it. RefugeMedical.com is the place to go. Promo code is Stu. RefugeMedical.com. Promo code Stu. New York Democrats have kind of stepped up and actually criticized Andrew Cuomo for his sexual harassment allegations. And again, we've we've talked about this. It's really an excuse uh, because of the nursing home stuff, how bad he was on COVID overall. Uh, in addition to that, also a lot of people looking for power in the state um, have come out against him. And there's been some really good people as well who have just said, look, this is we've, I've had enough. Uh, the sexual harassment allegations are largely a path to, of least resistance here. They can say they're standing up for women's rights to get Cuomo out instead of agreeing with like Donald Trump's analysis to get uh, Andrew Cuomo out. They don't, they don't want to say that. One person who's been really silent, though, on the Andrew Cuomo situation, Kirsten Gillibrand. Yes, the senator from New York, who was one of the first Democratic senators to call for Al Franken to resign in 2017, but has had almost nothing to say about Andrew Cuomo. In a series of statements, Gillibrand has said accusations of offensive behavior by Cuomo are serious and deeply concerning. Three women who have come forward have shown tremendous courage. She has said that claims against Cuomo are completely unacceptable and called for a full investigation, but not his resignation. Not exactly sure why. I'm sure she's got a good reason that just isn't she's protecting other New York Democrats. We'll watch and see. Because uh, I know you were like, oh, God, what is Kirsten Gillibrand saying about something? Um, I know that's what you thought. It wasn't that you had forgotten she existed. Back in a second. So there's like crappy ice cream. Uh, which is still, you know, halfway okay. And then there's like really good like premium ice cream you can buy in the grocery store. And then like 94 levels above that is Brooker's Founding Flavors ice cream. Uh, you got to have ice cream that you can love, that you can be proud to eat. They put like, um, you know, sort of historical messages. It's all tied into the Founding Fathers, which is really cool. But also like, honestly, they could tie, they could each have like characters that were like, praising communist leaders, and I'd still buy the freaking ice cream. It's that good. They have the Guns of Boston flavor, which has chunks of Little Debbie oatmeal cream pie in it. I really would like to get through this commercial one time without salivating. Also, St. Patrick's Day flavor they have, um, which is has mint Oreo cookies ice cream, chocolate chip brownies, and Andy's mints blended into an amazing scoop. I will say the red velvet uh, ice cream. They have all these fancy names for the flavors, which I, of course, can't remember. But I will say the Red Velvet one's really good, too. If you like Red Velvet, you're going to love that. They're all awesome. Brooker's Founding Flavors Ice Cream. Go there. Go to brookersicecream.com. Click on the Ship Nationwide tab. Brookersicecream.com. You deserve to be spoiled with this. You deserve it. Brookersicecream.com. Ship Nationwide is the tab to click. I'm sorry, I'm just uh, finishing a, a note. This is just so pleasurable to write with this pen. It's a Nancy Pelosi sucks pen, and it's available once again, nancypelosisuckspen.com. You can put it in Nancy Pelosi's face. We also have the mug, which is awesome, and the T-shirt as well. Check it out uh, there and uh, get some. They've been out of stock until, you know, since uh, November. So uh, they're back in. Get them while they last. Uh, one more story for you today. Uh, a woman uh, had her a French bulldog found uh, after it was lost, was found 
in Mexico, over 600 miles away. It, now, first of all, he was identified because he has a little tattoo, which is, I, I don't, okay, it was a tattoo. They found the tattoo. They knew it was the same dog. The family said, wait a minute, this looks like the dog we've been seeing on Facebook. You might want to check. That's right. The guy in Mexico is checking Facebook. He's like, I've been seeing this dog's face because they lost this dog. And then I just bought it on the streets of Mexico. A bizarre story. Uh, the guy um, used to live in the Bay Area, which maybe that's why he was getting a Bay Area feed. Um, and he was deported uh, from the U.S. two years ago and now lives alone in Tijuana. See, he got deported. See, enforcing immigration law leads to good things for everyone. <laughs> Who knew it would all come together like that?